Well, if you have a Bible with you, do you want to go ahead and grab it and turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 19? Uh, While you're finding it, uh, let me just tell you a quick story. I want you to try and imagine a scene with me. Uh, The story involves a young doctor who has a wife and three small children. And this doctor has volunteered to take a special six-month mission assignment to a place where there's been an outbreak of very rare and deadly disease. There's also a tremendous amount of hostility in this place towards outsiders. But this doctor volunteers to take the assignment because there's absolutely nobody else with his specialist training who's willing to go. And so he packs his bags and he heads off into the unknown, leaving behind his wife and his three children. The months pass incredibly slowly and the kids, I think it's fair to say, really miss their dad. The mum desperately tries to hold everything together while he's gone, does a, a valiant job of it, until finally the day of his return arrives and the whole family is full of excitement. Eventually, a taxi pulls up outside the house. Kids charge out of the front door, followed close behind by the mum, whose heart is beating so hard she can feel it. The back door of the, the taxi opens, and out steps Dad. Good bit thinner than he was before, bearded to conceal his hollow cheeks, but with a big smile across his weary face. Kneels down on the grass outside the house. He's smothered with six clinging arms and his legs as his kids bundle on top of him. Hooray for daddy! Daddy is home! Each one gets their own kind of special hug and kiss from their dad. They're young enough for that not to be awkward or embarrassing. That goes on while mum just stands patiently waiting to one side. Finally, he pulls himself loose from his kids and they embrace. Welcome home. It is so good to be back. Now, I want you to just step back from this scene and imagine you're looking into this doctor's eyes. Because if you look closely, there is a message there. And if you can see it and begin to feel it, then you'll know something of what Jesus felt as he rode into Jerusalem to shouts of acclamation. If you're here last week, we'd have read all about that. What you can see in this doctor's eyes is something that his family doesn't know. He caught the disease he went to cure and only has one week left to live. And that's the face of Jesus we're going to see in today's passage. In one eye, it's like you get the sparkle. Yes, I'm the king who comes in the name of the Lord. I've come home. This is my city. These are my subjects. But in the other eye, there's a tear. There will be no rain in Jerusalem, no peace, no justice, no coronation day, at least not now. I just have one week left to live. And even 
that week won't be particularly glorious. That week won't be particularly kingly. Now, of course, there's a huge difference between the death of the doctor and the story I've just told and the death of Jesus. Doctor's family desperately didn't want him to die. They, they stuck with him all the way to the end, were at his hospital bed as he breathed his last But many of those who cried, Hosanna to Jesus, at the triumphal entry we read about last time, found themselves crying out, crucify him, just a few days later. Even the allegiance of his own disciples vanished in the Garden of Gethsemane. His closest friends abandoned him, every single one of them. The pain experienced by Jesus was infinitely greater than that of the doctor in this tale. So as we rejoin the story here in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is standing before the city as a king who in just a matter of days will be crucified by his own people, crucified by his rebel subjects. What will he do? What will he say? How will he respond? Well, according to Luke 19, verse 41, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Three things going on in this passage that I don't want us to miss today. First of all, there's Jerusalem's ignorance about Jesus. Second, there is the threat of terrible judgment for Jerusalem. And third, there's Jesus' response to all of this. And I want to spend a bit of time looking at each of those three things trying to show you something of their application to our situation right now today. So first of all, let's look at the ignorance of Jerusalem. Judgment is coming upon Jerusalem, according to verse 44 here, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now back in the Old Testament, God's coming to his people was either to judge them or to save them. For example, in Isaiah 29 verse 5, the the prophet stands up and shouts out to the rebellious people, your enemies will become like fine dust. Suddenly in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. In case you're wondering, that's God's coming with judgment. And then in 
Genesis 50, verse 24, a bit further back in the story, Joseph says to his brothers in Egypt, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here, the promise is of God coming not for judgment, but him coming for salvation. Now, when we look in Luke's gospel, two other places in Luke's account where the idea of God coming occurs. We see that verse 44 here is clearly talking about God coming to save his people, specifically to save them, to deliver them through the promised Messiah. In Luke 1 verse 68, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, prophesies about Jesus. He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Then a few chapters on in Luke 7 verse 16 after Jesus had just raised up a widow's son from the dead. The people in the village of Nain we read were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us they said. God has come to help his people. And so when Jesus says to Jerusalem, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, I think he means you didn't realize that my coming to you is the coming of God for your salvation, the coming of God for your good, the coming of God for your rescue, for your deliverance. It's like Jerusalem was completely and utterly ignorant that the time in which it lived was absolutely unique. Never before had God come in this way to his people, and never again would he approach them quite like this. Jesus had come into the world to announce his kingship, to gather together God's people into a brand new community. The time was utterly unique, but God's chosen people were by and large oblivious to what was really going on. Back in Luke 12, verse 54, listen to what Jesus said to the crowds. He said, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? I think that's a good question. Why doesn't Jerusalem, why don't God's own people know how to interpret what is going on in their very midst? Uh, And the reason I think this is important to answer this question is because someone's bound to ask, well, how can they be destroyed for not knowing something? How can you be held to account? How can you be held responsible for something you're ignorant of? I mean, there are many people around us today who think they know what they need to do, but in fact don't have a true knowledge of God. Where does that leave them? So why didn't Jerusalem know that the king had come? Why didn't they see what was actually going on right there in front of them? I think there's a clue here in verse 42 where Jesus says, 
if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. There's just one other place in Luke. But these words translated, what would bring you peace, appear. It's found in the parable, as Jesus tells me, looked at it a few weeks back, Luke chapter 14. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first of all sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask, probably plead, beg for terms of peace. Terms of peace is the same phrase translated, what would bring you peace, here in our story in Luke 19. So the picture I think we should have in our minds as Jesus rides into Jerusalem for the final time is that of a king coming to a rebellious city, a hotbed of resistance against his rightful authority. And remarkably, the king is willing to make peace, but only on his own terms. Now when he says Jerusalem doesn't know these terms of peace, it doesn't mean he never told them what they were. Jesus has already cried out, again back further in the past in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 13 verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. There's the answer. The terms of peace have been spelt out by Jesus again and again and again and again as affectionately and as firmly as a hen goes after her chicks to try to protect them. Jerusalem knew the terms of peace, but rejected them. And the same is true about God's coming to them. And they've been shown and told that the king had come. They most certainly had. In Luke 17, verse 20, we're told that once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's like Jesus went to great lengths to dispel the misunderstandings of the Jewish people. He couldn't have been clearer that their expectations, their hopes for this kind of political warrior Messiah, they were misguided. The king and his kingdom had already arrived and it was clearly demonstrated in the power of Jesus' words and deeds. For example, in Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus says, If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying, God's kingly rule has arrived here in me. They know, they've heard, they've tasted, they've touched, they've seen that God has come to them. They know that this is the time of God's coming. They know the terms of peace. And so when Jesus says, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, I think he uses the word know in a different sense, very common in the Bible. 
For example, in Matthew 7, 22, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, Jesus knows all the facts there are to know about everyone. He knows. Well, what he means here is, I know it all, but I never approved of you. I never accepted your work. And that's the sense in which no is used here in this passage in Luke 19, verse 42. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, means if only you had approved these terms, if only you had acknowledged their rightness, if only you had accepted them into your life, then everything could have been, everything would have been so incredibly different. And so, the reason Jerusalem's guilty is subject to judgment isn't because it never heard of God's coming or his terms of peace, but because tragically the people knew but rejected them. So first of all then, there's Jerusalem's ignorance about Jesus. Second thing we see in this passage, there is the threat of terrible, terrible judgment for Jerusalem. For Jerusalem, the historical form of that judgment came in 70 AD. It's described ahead of time in verses 43 and 44 here. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Forty years later, this prophecy came true. Roman army besieged Jerusalem, conquered it, leveled the temple to the ground. Now I say, this is the historical form of God's judgment on Jerusalem. Because the destruction of a city, even the loss of life in physical death, isn't ultimately the end. It is only the beginning of judgment. Listen, no one in the Bible warned of hell as often or as vividly as Jesus did. One of those warnings came to Jerusalem just a few days after the triumphal entry, a few days after the events we're reading about now. Jesus says to the Pharisees, according to Matthew and his gospel, Matthew 23, so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel right through to the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all of this will come upon this generation. 
it's like that hen that we read about just a few moments ago with outspread and beckoning wings wanting to protect and guard has been transformed into a roaring lion you need to know this there is a too late in dealing with God he may stretch out his wings to you he may beckon you again and again and again and again to take refuge in his mercy and his grace and his love but there will come a point when the beckoning ceases and the sentence is passed and it is too late Please do not miss the very real warning here in this passage. As a result of Jerusalem's stubborn refusal to accept God's offer of peace, God caused it to be hidden from their eyes. They were perhaps complacent. Think, well, maybe we'll think about another day. God hid it from their eyes. They were blinded to the truth that Jesus, their Savior, was right there in their very midst. That's how it was for Jerusalem. And that is how it is for us today. I want to appeal to you not to take God's offer of salvation for granted. Because for those who repeatedly, stubbornly refuse to come, the beckoning will cease the sentence will be passed and then it will be too late. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Please, don't let that be true of you. God is calling us to respond to his invitation. And there is a very real urgency about this. You you cannot afford to keep ignoring it or putting it off for another day. As Hebrews 4 verse 7 puts it, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So I believe there's a very real, urgent, desperate personal application for us in this passage. But I also don't want us to miss what it teaches us about God and his heart for the city. Although what was going on in Jerusalem, it was unique. We've looked at some of the reasons why. I believe there are still things we can learn here as we consider our city today. I mean, the ignorance, the rejection of Jesus, the spiritual blindness, the very real threat of judgment. Surely these are all to be seen as we look at and consider the state of Birmingham right now. So much so that we could look out of the windows and be forgiven for feeling pretty hopeless. In fact, we, we could be tempted just to give up I mean, what's the point of doing anything we could just retreat into our cozy little christian ghetto 
But Jesus models something incredibly important here for all of us. So thirdly, what can we learn from Jesus' response? Three things. So we look at Birmingham, we should have compassion for the city, concern for the peace of the city, and willingness to sacrifice for the city, even if the city doesn't receive us or accept us. First of all, compassion for the city. For all the problems with Jerusalem, and they were huge, Jesus' mercy is still tenderly moved by its plight. He clearly feels the sorrow of the situation. No doubt he had a a deep inner peace that his heavenly father was sovereign, his heavenly father was in control, all of his wise purposes would come to pass. Doesn't mean you can't cry. In fact, on the contrary, I appeal to you here. Pray that God would give you tears. There is so much pain in this city. There is so much suffering all around you. Won't you pray that God would help you be tenderly moved by it? Think about it like this. If you die and stand before the throne of God and he asks you, how did you feel about the suffering around you? What do you say? How do you answer? I promise you, you won't feel good about saying, well, look, uh, I had the discernment to see how a lot of people brought their suffering on themselves by their foolishness or by their sin. I mean, it was their own doing. It was their own fault. You know what I think God will say to that? I think he'll say, I didn't ask you what you discerned. I asked what you felt. Jesus felt enough compassion for Jerusalem to weep real tears. If you haven't shed any tears for somebody's losses or pain but your own, it probably means you're too wrapped up in yourself. So let's repent of our hardness where necessary and ask God to give us a heart like his that is tenderly, tenderly moved by the need around us. So first of all then, if we're going to respond like Jesus, as we look at our city, as we look at our community, our neighborhood, our street, we should have compassion for it. Second, we should have concern for the peace of the city. Although this passage today undoubtedly is pretty bleak and sober, fearful, I don't want us to lose sight of the real words of hope that still pulsate through it all. I don't think Luke recorded this message for us just to inform us about Jerusalem's doom. I think 
his main purpose was to encourage us that Jesus is always eager. He is always willing to make peace with anyone who will accept the terms of peace that he offers. He wept over it. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over his city. He said, if you, even you, these people who were plotting his death, even as he stood there, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. And you know what? After Jesus had died and risen from the dead and returned to his Father in heaven, he didn't abandon the world. His offer of peace keeps on coming through his ambassadors. It's exactly how the Apostle Paul describes us in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God himself were making his appeal through us. We implore you then, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Just as Jesus came to Jerusalem with the offer of peace, he now commissions us to be his peace envoy into our city. But it's always peace on his terms. The terms of peace are very, very simple. Lay down your arms, your weapons, especially the weapons of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency by which you're keeping God and his mercy away. It's all over. Admit your defeat. Sin will continue to hold you captive unless you accept his terms of peace. Admit your defeat. Surrender. And then accept your free and full pardon. There is a total amnesty if you swear your allegiance to the new king in your life. Won't you, right now, picture Jesus going into that rebel city to make a way for us, to make a way for you to be reconciled to God. For us, for you to have peace with God. And now, would you hear him commissioning you to take this message of reconciliation, to take this good news that there is a way to have peace with God to our city, to the people around us? Secondly then, if we're going to respond like Jesus, we should be, we must be concerned for the peace of our city. And then thirdly and finally, there aren't going to be another three sub-clauses after this one. Thirdly and finally, we need to have a willingness to sacrifice for the city, even if the city doesn't receive or accept us. Jesus' mercy was self-denying. Not ultimately. There was great reward in the long run for the joy set before him. He went to the cross. We were part of the joy. We were part of the reward that kept him going on into Jerusalem to the cross and beyond. But it was incredibly painful in the short run. This passage today is part of the story of Jesus moving intentionally towards suffering and death. Jesus 
He's entering Jerusalem to die. He said as much in the previous chapter, Luke 18, 31. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered up and they will kill him. This was the ultimate sacrifice. And we are now called to take up our cross and follow him. This is the way we follow Jesus. We we see a need for Jesus. It was seeing the sin of the world and broken bodies and the misery of hell. Uh, And we today move with Jesus, whatever it costs us, towards the need. We deny ourselves the comforts and the securities and the ease of avoiding other people's pain. And instead, in some way, we stoop down and embrace it. Listen, Jesus' tears were not just the tender moving of his emotions in the moment. They were the tears of a man on his way towards doing something about the need, about our need. Jesus was dying in our place that we might be forgiven and have eternal life with him. Thank God that ultimately mercy doesn't just feel, though it does feel, And it doesn't just deny itself, though it does deny itself. It actually does something. It does stuff that helps people. It takes risks. It makes sacrifices, even if it doesn't get anything back in return. So as we draw to a close, let me ask you, what will it look like for you How are you doing right now at sacrificing for others? When was the last time you, in some way, moved out of your comfort zone towards the need of someone else? If we're going to respond like Jesus, we've got to be willing to sacrifice for the city, even if the city doesn't receive or accept us. More than anything else, my prayer is that this message would cause you to fall more and more and more in love with Jesus, that you'd worship him for his mercy to you, and that seeing him and loving him and cherishing him, you would become more and more like him. That you would have more compassion for the people in need around you. And that you'd be driven by a desire for them to find genuine, lasting peace with God. And that you'd make some courageous sacrifices to move towards the need and to actually do something about it. That together, we would make much of Jesus and be for the good of our city.